Domestic abuse, school shootings, mass killings, ethno-political conflict, genocide, terrorism and war. Peace psychology is the study of the mental processes that lead to conflict and how that knowledge can be used in a positive way. In this series, Peace in Mind, we'll be exploring the breadth of peace and conflict psychology. So conflict and peace are, yeah, definitely not to be associated with badness and goodness, evil and good. <laughs> I'm Kim Stewart. And I'm Linda Rose. We're your hosts for this series. Peace in Mind is produced in the studios of 4EB Brisbane with the help of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and Psychologists for Peace, an interest group of the Australian Psychological Society. You know, oftentimes a lack of overt conflict signals domination and silencing and um, one person's interests or one group's interests, um, you know, holding the centre and everyone else at the margins silent and passive. So conflict sometimes is a way of um, people being able to express what they need and and more broadly it's it's often linked in with innovation. I mean there's there's cycles of change and there's teething problems of change but without that change um, people stagnate and groups can stagnate. Hello and welcome to this first edition of Peace in Mind. In this series we're going to be exploring the work of peace psychologists. From how their studies relate to interpersonal conflicts, to group conflicts and international conflicts which have the capacity to affect the entire human race and all life on this planet. During this episode we're going to be looking at the fundamentals of peace psychology and how this field of study emerged from its beginnings in the fringes of academia to now being considered a legitimate academic discipline. These days peace psychologists are sought after for their assistance in solving modern day problems in all levels of society. You know now we can actually use the word peace in academia. It was such a bad word, you know. In 1982, during the height of the Cold War, US psychologists and social justice advocates established Psychologists for Social Responsibility, which they said was dedicated to preventing planetary murder and suicide in light of the potential for nuclear war. In 1984, Australian psychologists, many of whom were involved in activism against the Vietnam War, started Psychologists for Peace. Social researcher and co-editor of Peace Psychology in Australia, Dr. Di Brotherton explains. When we started, the psychologists who we called the pioneers worked as academics and then part-time did some peace work. Um, so we're really talking here um, people who were doing their began their academic careers in the say the 70s, late 60s and 70s. Um, they found it very hard to actually uh, do peace at university, and it was such a bad word, you know. So I remember um, someone writing about um, about my work in the 80s and saying there are no reds under the beds anymore because they're all in the classrooms. So there was a very, uh, very Cold War um, feeling about the word peace and, you know, that if you thought peace was a good thing, you must be secretly in league with the Russians, for example. <laughs> so it was quite, quite provocative and also a fear that it would get 
very much out of control and peace work was seen as uh, synonymous with protests, sort of against something mm. um, and uh, often things like the ban the bomb march against the, against the uh, bomb. It was oppositional but the early um, psychological work was very much arguing that activism is quite a good thing and it was fairly focused around nuclear war um, and the argument was that if you are more activist as a parent and take an interest that the children will actually be less anxious whereas there was quite a prevailing ethos that you don't worry children about wars in a way that you know now looks very unrealistic because even then they, they had radio and magazines and so on and so but it was more possible to be protective in a way of children in a way that it's not possible these days no, impossible and uh, so the psychologists were arguing that if you engage with the issues and you discuss them with your children that's better than sweeping it all aside and thinking that they don't know what well, they do know but they're just not talking to adults about it nuclear holocaust is possible a shelter will offer you protection today that protection is offered in the economical survival civil defense approved combination steel and concrete block fallout shelter available with a basic equipment kit economical but Priceless. One of the um, differences between the development of peace psychology here and in the United States, for example, is there was a lot more developmental psychology here. So in the United States, peace psychology is seen uh, very much as social psychology, and of course social psychology plays a role, but I would argue that other forms of psychology can also play a role. For example, how we run organisations is pretty uh, important for peace and organisational psychology has a lot to contribute. Um, but there was a very active group of developmental psychologists who are still, um, they're still alive, many of them are retired. Um, but they, they did work on children's development and, and what makes children more aggressive and what makes children less aggressive. Um, and many of them had, other than peace psychology as their main academic discipline. Um, so for example, Margot Pryor was very influential in the early days and her um, area was autism, so there's quite a split between their academic work and the work they did mm. for peace. I think it's really helpful um, for younger people who are just starting to think, well, what, what am I doing now and what can I do that would um, contribute to building peace within what I'm doing? You don't actually have to do, have to give up um, your career and your home and um, whereas initially peace was seen as so um, so much a protest that it often was a choice and in, and of course in the Vietnam War protests it, for many people it was a, a choice if you were a conscientious objector that was going to have serious implications for having 
a career and you might go to jail in time to... which Elf Transporter produced during his workshops with Aboriginal youth who live in remote communities. Before No Fighting, Dr Di Bretherton was speaking about the origins of the field now known as peace psychology. You're listening to Peace in Mind on 4EB, 4ZZZ and the Community Radio Network. Uh, well, peace psychology is an interdisciplinary field that often starts with the psychology, as was the case in my career, where you might be a psychologist in developmental psych dealing with children or in social psych dealing with groups and then you become interested specifically in how peace and conflict are related to each other how positive conflict resolution can be fostered um, and it's also a field that has attracted people from other areas like political science or uh, mediation or diplomacy who are trying to understand the psychological aspects of what they're doing so you know, why is it, for example, that you might have what seems like a lose-lose situation between two parties or nations that are fighting each other and they can't, just can't let go of an old conflict. And so they realize that there's something more than just the interests on the table. There's a psychological aspect and they come into psychology, peace psychology, to look for it. And there's a journal of peace psychology and there's a um, division of the American Psychological Association of Peace Psychology. And here in Australia, we've got the Psychologists for Peace Interest Group. And, and all of those um, kind of professional spaces are associated with people who are trying to um, work towards a more peaceful world. Usually, despite what I just said um, about the benefits of conflict, we also want to make sure that there's not a kind of cycle of violence or of oppression or one-sidedness. So uh, there's a bit of an idealistic group of, in that sense. Dr. Winifred Lewis is convener of Psychologists for Peace. She says peace psychologists are a very diverse group. At the international level, there's psychologists who look at uh, peace and war and international negotiations. And then at the um, within society level, there's psychologists who look at racism or sexism or other prejudices as part of a cycle of um, 
you know, negative social relations that could be improved that look usually at how to promote a, more, a less racist world, a more inclusive world. And then there's also peace psychologists who look at the interpersonal level and at group functioning. So how to make your close relationships work, your family relationships work in a more positive way where you can have change without, um, without insults or violence. And then group functioning. So how to make activist groups function more positively or organizations. And there's even um, people that are working in, you know, kind of corporate contexts that are interested in peace psychology, although usually that's um, in a kind of management sense, you know, managing employee uh, and relations between divisions of a company, let's say. Yeah, so anywhere where you find psychologists, there are also peace psychologists. And of course, there's the study of children um, and how children learn what is a good way to deal with conflict or not. And that's a really important and interesting area. And related to that, people have studied, you know, animals and how they um, deal with each other, how they how they solve problems and social problems with, you know, more peaceful or more conflictual and violent ways. So those are called comparative um, psychologists, although there's also biologists who do that kind of work. And yeah, each of those um, has representatives in peace psychology. So it's a huge field. One important area of study for peace psychologists is the extent to which science backs up our common sense views of what is natural aggression for human beings. There's an implicit theory of human nature which underlies people's approach to conflict. Like you might have some people that think that, you know, we're naturally competitive and violent and other people that say that we're naturally cooperative. Well, that's an empirical question. You know, we can look at our grade eight cousins and say, well, how do they behave? You know, and it turns out that some of them have what you might call warlike behavior where groups of male um, apes will like comb through the forest and find isolated members of other groups and kill them and take their territory and kind of rape the women, the female monkeys. And that's disturbing for those of us who are more idealistic. But on the other hand, you can also look at those great ape cousins and show that they have, they have alliances, they have cooperation, they have empathy, um, and they have a natural, um, what you would call altruism, um, although it's debated, you know, what altruism really is. So they have, we have a biological basis that allows us to connect with each other. That's not just kind of imposed by our higher reasoning and a kind of um, logic that you'd be nice to other people so that they'll be nice to you. You know, we are pack animals with a biological basis of empathy and compassion and generosity. And if animals can show us that, that's sometimes a powerful message that um, kind of short circuits a lot of the debate. You know, when people are looking at human generosity and kindness, there's often a, quite an ideological aspect um, to how they interpret it. But if you can show that great apes can do the same thing, then at least it seems to answer the question of whether we all have the capacity for compassion and altruism. The answer is yes, yes we do. Lots of people coming from a more economic model would say that you know it's it's really um, fuzzy-minded to try to aspire to universal peace. That humans always have been competitive, and we've always used war within our societies to you know acquire resources. And again, those are empirical questions, and the answer is no. That's not true. Not all societies have used war, and societies really vary in how much they use militarism and violence. And 
sometimes that shows that um, if you're too pacifist, you can be left open to more militarist groups, and that's a debate that we need to have. But the existence of societies that have not used war, you know, demonstrated in anthropology, is an important rebuttal to the argument that we're naturally a warlike species. You know, people sometimes approach humans as if we're the same as leopards and jaguars, you know, um, but we're really not like that if you look at our social relationships, both in terms of our great ape cousins, great, great ape cousins, and in terms of the um, specter, spectrum of societies through time and even around the world. So I think those are part of, of answering the question, is peace possible with a yes? As we heard in the beginning of this episode, Dr. Lewis feels conflict plays an important role in our interpersonal and intergroup relationships and is necessary for progress to occur. So what makes a conflict a good conflict or a bad conflict? Most people would agree that bad conflict uh, includes violence and hurtfulness and one-sided problem solving where one person wins and the other one loses. Um, Obviously, within every conflict, there's um, disagreements about what's a fair and unfair outcome. But most people could say ahead of time what they think a good conflict resolution process will include. And it'll include things like each party, party being able to say what they want and be respected for articulating what they want. And a, a process that's mutually agreed on for how you're going to um, end the conflict with, in a way that hopefully will benefit both people. And so um, good conflicts bring both parties ideally to a sense that they've gained something from the solution um, and that there's been a positive change from what where they were before. But it's not always possible for both parties to feel like they've won. Um, but even if the outcomes don't satisfy both people or don't satisfy them equally, both people might feel like they've been heard and that they've been able to articulate their views. And I think that that's um, part of what most people would agree is is the, the core of positive conflict resolution is that people should be able to um, articulate and be respected for what they need and what they want. And then there's the question of, you know, is the um, outcome that you're fighting over something that it's possible for both people to share and both people to gain from, or is it inevitably a win-lose situation? Sometimes people feel as though there's an objective reality where only one person can win, only one person is going to come out of this um, happy. But oftentimes, at least as psychologists, um, we feel like those beliefs can be misguided and that the, 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 the pie can be grown and the dimensions can be expanded to allow uh, more people to gain from a conflict resolution process. So for example, in a family, it may be the case that someone has to take out the trash, but um, it doesn't have to just, you don't have to define the conflict solely in terms of that one decision. There's a broader family dynamic of, is one person doing all the work, you know? Um, and that's like that in many cases of conflict as well. So what makes a conflict good or bad partly depends on how it's being defined and whether people are able to trade off what's happening in one situation with what's happening in another and the roles and relationships that are being respected or denied in the conflict resolution progress, process. So um, a bad conflict that includes elements of violence and hurtfulness, part of what makes it bad is because the person has um, been disrespected, there's been an unequal power balance, there hasn't been a, a procedural agreement 
about how we're going to move forward and they're being really kind of trapped and coerced within that conflict and most people um, don't enjoy that. Clouds are wide, yeah, it's a wonderful world if you look at it right Look at it like you're living in a bubble on the top And like the mind of Charlie Sheen winning non-stop Rocking a fresh pair of rose-colored glasses With blinkers on, thinking so wild with laughing We mastered the art of turning a blind eye And whitewashing like Blondie and Bondi And putting spin on it, stretching out the truth what we see through it, so we're reaching out to you And like mine, the peeps who ain't whining And speak up, don't never just stay silent And keep an eye out for any silver linings But you can't cover up the thunder and the lightning Been 27 years in the light and the darkness See the shadows and the sunshine mirror my heart And the spark that would guide me through thick and thin Hypocrites and sins I see the city light sharp in the eyes of my lovers I see myself twinned in the memories I covered The oceans are covered in a sailboat of ink Either sink or swim, short life We fall back to where we begin I took chances, I took risks I took the path less traveled Where the crooked road twist found answers And I insist I don't Need a million dollars just to say that I'm rich I need a home cooked meal and an empress A woman who allows me to lower my defenses A smile for my mom, for myself, good health All I need in this beautiful life, nothing We're else living nothing in else. a beautiful world, a beautiful world Filled with beautiful sights, a beautiful world We're living in a beautiful world, a beautiful world Filled with parasites, but still a beautiful world We're living in a beautiful world, a beautiful world Filled with hypocrites, but still a beautiful world We're living in a beautiful world, a beautiful world your world too when you don't have to like what I'm selling but this is my worldview and what man is capable of I'm scared too I read it daily in the morning use it when I flick on the tube assume this position I believe it's called shot I can stake a place and no longer politically or not and they say we live in a free country much to the contrary it's not ignorance is bliss this mentality passed down from father to son minds of the lost the buck stops with us united in one common cause forge like an iron sword walk like your life's worth more read so you know the score and defending not their mainstream media they be tricking the brother so that he thinks he's less when he's really more so sore to the sky you cannot fall wherever you're from my people just stand tall we're living in a beautiful world a beautiful world filled with beautiful sights a beautiful world we're living in a beautiful world a beautiful world filled with parasites but still a beautiful world we're living in a beautiful world a beautiful world filled with hypocrites but still a beautiful world we're living in a Listening to Peace in Mind on 4EB, 4ZZZ, and the Community Radio Network. The song you just heard was Beautiful Worlds by Brisbane band Impossible Odds and featured Rain Man.
Although Dr. Lewis accepts that violence may be necessary for self-defense, she believes that if we widen the perspective of a particular conflict, it is possible to work towards avoiding a situation where violence is required. Because the wider we look at the frame of social relations, the less violence is necessary. So if some country has invaded you, maybe violence is necessary to meet that. You know, I certainly would, would be prepared to argue that everyone has a right of self-defense, countries as well as individuals. But what happened before that invasion? You know, was there a way of averting it and is there a way of ending it? You know, if there's only so much water to go around or only so much oil, you might think, well, we have to fight to acquire our share because we just need it for our society. We're not going to give it up. Well, if we narrow the conversation to that one resource and to the next, you know, five years, maybe that makes sense. But if we think about all the resources of the earth and this, the countries that are, are, were there before the oil disaster and are going to be here long after peak oil has passed, then you can ask yourself, does it make sense to poison the well environmentally and socially to go to war over oil, you know? So that's the kind of conversation that I think people need to have. Even if violence seems like it makes sense superficially within a narrow um, moment of time and for a specific dimension, as soon as you start widening up the picture, then I think even people who are really militarist would agree, we wouldn't want to have all societies' um, conflicts resolved with guns. And once people have agreed, then we can start changing the parameters, you know? America's new path to war. We've endured too many of these tragedies in the past few years. There's, this, there's quite a robust relationship between internal and external violence. Um, I mean, that may change at different moments in time, but societies that are more accepting of violence um, have, tend to have higher rates of violence across the spectrum. And societies that are more peaceful tend to have higher rates of um, peaceful conflict negotiation across the spectrum from domestic violence to assault to war. And um, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, but lots of people would argue that the availability of guns within the U.S. has played a role in not just domestic violence and school massacres, but also gang violence and community violence and the incarceration practices and the kind of social structural violence against poor people and black people and you know that that kind of has played out across a whole range of levels it's certainly not just the narrow school shooting this leads us into the topic of our next episode how we can resolve conflicts without coming to blows that's it for this edition of peace in mind thanks for listening Peace in Mind is produced for the Community Radio Network with the help of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and Psychologists for Peace, an interest group of the Australian Psychological Society. Theme and background music by Jandy Rainbow, unisonicascension.com. Series producers Kim Stewart, Linda Rose and Nathan Renault. You can find out more about the topics we cover by going to facebook.com slash peaceinmindproject. I really think the possibility of change is something that I'm most passionate about communicating because the debate tends to be very fatalistic and I, I think that that misunderstanding, once that's cleared away, 
creates a lot of energy and excitement. You know, if it's not inevitable that we're going to have war and violence and cruelty, then what next? <laughs>